Hey, everyone. Welcome to the GeoTrek podcast. Pete, thank you so much for taking time today to come on the podcast and share your life experiences with us. Oh, it's been a long time coming to get reacquainted, I, I think, with, with you, Hal. And uh, it's, uh, it's really my pleasure and privilege. Every time we're together, we have amazing conversations that end up traveling the world, and I think it'll be no different today. Pete, I wanted to start off, I know you have this passion and love for mountaineering. I mean, where did that come from? When did you start climbing mountains? And uh, walk us through that journey, please. I started climbing mountains in my mind back in when I was in the fifth or sixth grade. My mom was a social studies and geography teacher and put all the information about, well, the early Everest expeditions, the reconnaissance expeditions that were even trying to just get to the foot of the mountain, let alone climb it. Of course, the tales of Hillary and Tenzing and so many mountaineers uh, during that during that time frame, which literally was the was the golden age of mountaineering. And, and really, it was just introduction through books. I, I grew up in New York, went to high school in New York City, um, didn't grow up in you know, terribly close to the mountains, but was able to get out into the mountains starting in my early teens and then moved to Colorado shortly after that and started traveling, you know, throughout the, throughout the world, uh, beginning in the late 70s. So it's been a, a real love affair with the high places on earth. Oh, for sure. And it seems like you have experience in a lot of these different mountain chains. I wanted to start out with the continental U.S. You've spent a lot of time in the Rockies and the Pacific Northwest. You know, sometimes we hear about people getting into trouble and needing rescue from places like Mount Hood or Mount Rainier. What are some of the dangers that can blindside people in the Pacific Northwest when they're climbing on some of these volcanic peaks? Specifically with, with Mount Rainier, which I know extremely well, Mount Hood a little bit, not, not quite as well, is that people don't have the appreciation for how quickly the weather can turn and navigating in whiteout conditions or when there's visibility of, you know, if you feel like you're, you know, we call it being inside of a ping pong ball or something like that, where you have really no appreciation for any landmarks around you having to, to travel. What most people will know, they use GPS or they'll use map and compass if you're old school like me. But, uh, but in any case, it's dealing with weather changes and then dealing with a glaciated environment. We just don't have a lot of those. Certainly in the lower 48, in Alaska, we have quite a bit more. And the people who get onto the glaciers of Denali or Mount Hunter or any of the other big peaks up there in the Alaska range certainly know that uh, they're, they're flying into glaciers and that there can be crevasses, there can be other types of hazards as a result of where you're traveling that may be unpredictable, there may be new snow. And those are those are very similar on Mount Hood and, and more, uh, more apropos in, uh, on on Mount Rainier, where we have some of the largest glaciers in the lower 48. Yeah. So do you feel like sometimes people just get up there and they're maybe underestimating what the, how quickly the weather can change with elevation? Absolutely. People, people don't have an appreciation for, I mean, for Mount Rainier specifically, you can go from, you know, bluebird, clear skies, no wind to something completely on the far side of that, where you have extreme wind very low visibility, um, just uh, driving driving snow and sleet, uh, very difficult to find your way, um, even if you can can stand up despite the intense winds that you can find up there. So it's a it's a wild environment and one has to be prepared for it or certainly be conservative enough to not let oneself get too too far overextended. For the Pacific Northwest, is there a specific climbing season? I'm guessing spring into summer, probably you'd get more climbers up there. Is there a certain time where people tend to get in more trouble than others? You know, in the in, in the Northwest, we uh, you know we have we have a saying, yeah, the summers are the summers are are the best time of the year here, but then there are the other eleven and a half months that you got to deal with, um, and it, generally you don't see people going out into the into the. Uh, into the mountains much in winter. I mean, you see, you do see some where there's where there's good access. Of course, skiing is really popular here in backcountry and uh, and alpine. But um, generally, you're going to see more and more people, and just by by virtue of the demographics, you're going to see more people getting in trouble in the fall and then the summer months. It's, uh, you just see a higher higher number of people out there pushing it really hard because the weather during the summer can be quite predictable. So it's, uh, you know, very stable to, to push your, push your limits out there. 
And uh, so I think we see most of those most of those issues coming up in the spring, summer, and fall when we see more people out there. This year, guiding on McKinley and uh, and also more importantly on Mount Rainier, we just saw the climate play a really incredible role. Um, we had to close down the mountaineering guiding on Rainier because of, of effectively the hot temperatures that made the glaciers just impassable. I mean, we had conditions on Rainier looking more like traveling through the Kumbu Icefall on Everest where a dozen aluminum extension ladders were needed. And, you know, we've used them over the years there, but this year was particularly different. Have you seen changes over time in places like Lynn Rainier from, say, hotter hotter summers, uh, more melding, things like that? Absolutely. I mean, we see we see hotter temperatures. We see more critically the freezing point um, and elevation is and has been at, for weeks at a time above the summit of the mountain. So effectively, what you're seeing is the the glaciers and the surface of the glaciers and the terrain doesn't harden, doesn't make it easier for you to travel, doesn't make it safer for the snow bridges one uses to cross crevasses. So it's it can make the the environment quite a bit quite a bit more dangerous. There are times when at thirteen thousand feet you could see water sort of cascading off the top of Seracs, which was incredibly surreal for someone who has been climbing in the mountains now more than 40 years. And, and being on a glacier where you witness that is quite disturbing. Pete, I know you're a weather junkie, as a lot of mountaineers are. So let's say someone's climbing Mount Rainier and they want to know what what are the conditions up on the mountain? How can they know that? I mean, are there weather stations on the sides of the mountain? Is there anything up closer to the summit? I mean, where would people access data and, and how close to the summit can you get those data? There's the, there's actually a, a really wonderful weather website that's run through the Rainier National Park uh, service websites, and it'll give you air temperature, pressure, uh, anemometry, uh, maximum minimum temperature, a whole variety of different datum that's 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 really critical to uh, to making good decisions up there. So just there's so many resources that are are through the National Park website. Oh, that's fantastic! I know you know we know if we spend time in the mountains, things can change in a hurry, and having access to those data are are super important. Uh, Peter wanted to travel now to the Himalaya, a place where you spent a lot of time. I mean, could you walk us to that that first time when you showed up in that part of the world? I mean, what was it like? What stood out to you about the mountains, about the people? And then uh, walk us through like your extensive time there. How how long have you spent in that part of the world, and and what did your time look like? As I as I mentioned earlier, I I anticipated being in the Himalaya long before I ever ever got on a plane, ever got into any place close to the mountains just through research from the time when I was I was very young um, and then through going through all of the rigorous apprenticeship that I went through in Europe and South America and Denali, all of those places so that I could be prepared for taking on the challenge of the Himalayas successfully and more importantly safely. But it wasn't until 1982 that I was able to get get to the Himalaya of India and it was like walking into another world. It was like going into, obviously, a, a completely new, fresh, untrammeled environment, and also culturally just fas- fascinating and, and divergent and stimulating and, uh, you know, and uplifting in so many ways. Oh, that's, that's amazing. So and it sounds like you spent time, obviously, climbing there, but along the way, you, I would imagine, spent time in villages and some of these, these uh urban or even even smaller village areas right in the mountains and in the mountainous valleys absolutely i mean climbing climbing was effectively the catalyst that brought me to those places but as a lot of mountaineers say you know the mountains bring us there but the people keep us coming back time after time after time and it's really developing those friendships and that those relationships understanding how one can contribute to those communities to be able to deal with not only the good side of tourism, which of course provides revenue and provides jobs for for many people there, but also has the downside of of culturally diluting some of those practices by effectively having so many Western people traveling into a place like the Everest region. And it has an effect and it has an impact, but by I think by contributing our expertise and by contributing our knowledge, 
um, you know, we can we can help to diminish some of those and help to take care of some of the need, some of which is quite profound in these areas. Well, that's that's true. I know some of these areas have a lot of needs, maybe have lack of resources or, or some poverty. Um, so I, I would imagine the really climbing season and mountain uh, tourism and mountaineering tourism and climbing and things like that, that does help stimulate the economy, I would imagine, in, in parts of these mountainous regions of this Himalayas. It, it definitely does. I mean, certainly the, the Everest, Everest region primarily, uh, with so many expeditions going, especially in the springtime, more limited in the fall, but there are really quite a few people who not only are, are going to climb, but there may be people who are going just to trek to reach the base camps to see some of the incredible sights of Everest, but so many other peaks that are there. There's, uh, I know that, that uh, there's been just a significant inclusion of, uh, of people. Just lost you there, but... Uh, there's so many people who come, especially in the fall season. You know, there are only about three to 4,000 people who live in the upper Everest region. And there could be upwards of twenty to 25,000 people coming in just the month of October or November alone. So you can imagine that, you know, so many people coming to see that place to witness the splendor of Everest. But they have to be careful because there's so many people that are on the trails as a result of it. So... You know, trying to trying to work towards spreading out some of the use of that area and then helping to provide training for the guides who work to bring those people there so that people can have a safe, wonderful time there and uh, and, and obviously be able to provide for that uh, that need that uh, that I mentioned earlier, whether that's for education, whether it's medical, whether it's dental, that there's uh, there's still that economy in Kumbu that really thrives on tourism but is sensible. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and that's the thing. I think we're looking for balance, right? Where we bring in opportunities, bring in e economic stimulation. But sometimes I've heard of drawbacks if people are too dependent on tourism as well. And I, um, later in the, in the broadcast, we're going to talk a little bit about that. First, I wanted to ask you, I know you've done numerous expeditions to Everest. When you look back at them, are they all very different from each other? In some ways, are, are they very similar? I mean, how, do they, how does one expedition stand out to you from another? Well, they each each expedition is its is its own its own entity. It's its own its own life is created effectively by the people who are in it, and then the events that take place and the challenges one has to overcome to either get to the top or or at least to make a make a sustained effort and then get everybody back safely. So certainly the the landscape we go to is dynamic as well. There's, you know, anything can happen on uh, on a, a huge peak like Mount Everest where you have these unpredictable elements uh, all around you. You know, there, there are so many years where we, we had just uh, significant challenges from the Kumbu Icefall and getting up into the Western Kumb above camps one and two, and then finally the upper mountain. And then obviously just dealing with just the vagaries of dealing with one's own performance at high altitude, which can vary trip to trip, just depending on one's health, conditioning, nutrition. There's so many different variables, it's hard to say that one expedition is exactly the same as another because they're all unique in their own right. So, Peter, if, if you went on an expedition in one year and then you went back the next year, would you likely be taking the exact same path or would parts of the trek be like rerouted because of ice falls or, or snow or ice conditions? You would certainly have a general understanding of where a particular climbing route would go. But the, the actual line, the actual track that's put in where ropes are fixed will likely change. That's interesting. So it sounds like things can change over time. Do things sometimes change dynamically when you're on the mountain? Like that, okay, this wasn't the plan, but we're going to make an alternation because conditions have changed? Absolutely. I mean, there, there are times when we have significant ice fall events or, or, or big, big wind events. Um, there can be different types of climactic events that can shape how we approach the mountain um, and how we try to mitigate some of those those uh, those dangers. Also, if really severe winds come in, you, you could be in like in a base camp or in a high camp for numerous days. Is that right? Yes, 
I've been I've been up at our high camp at twenty six thousand feet. At one point, I think we were there five days before we we were able to summit, which was uh, I don't know. It's, I, I I wouldn't I really wouldn't wish that on anybody. Just hearing hearing the wind, wondering whether one was going to be picked up and taken into Tibet uh, against one's will, mind you. Um, so it uh, you know I I. I generally believe that we try to limit the amount of time we spend at those high elevations, and uh, sometimes we don't get the uh, the opportunity to go when we want to. So an example like that, where it sounds like that was an extreme example, but multiple people really stuck at 26,000 feet for, for many days in a row, are, are people on, on oxygen like continuously or just using it in sporadically? Or can some people acclimate at certain elevations that even though it's really high, they don't need a lot of oxygen support? Well, the mountain's been climbed without oxygen, certainly. Uh, people, people do it, uh, especially people who are, who are Sherpa, do it quite routinely. However, to be able to live for sustained periods of time, it's, it's certainly better better for your performance to have it sporadically and sometimes to have it in a more sustained way for people who are less experienced or don't have the benefit of those superior genetics. Pete, for you personally, at what elevation do you, do you really start craving uh, more oxygen support? I think for, I think for most people who, who grow up in the lower 48 and don't spend a lot of time at 6,000, 7,000 meters, I think you really start to, to notice the difference you know, right around six to seven thousand meters, I think is is where where you really notice. No matter what your your acclimatization is, even if you've been on the mountain for for three weeks to a month, you you definitely notice your performance drops off significantly, and that you start to see the benefits of of oxygen really outweigh the uh, the detriment of carrying the extra weight of the equipment between seven and eight thousand meters. Pete, with the so oxygen depletion, feet. you mentioned noticing it in your performance. Could you also notice it when you're just trying to rest in your tent? I mean, could you also notice shortness of breath then as well? You know, generally, it's uh, what one thing I did find is that I could I could once I was on the mountain three to four weeks at rest, if I was healthy and and, and acclimatized, I could get my pulse down to a very low rate. I could rest reasonably well. But sleeping was another matter entirely, and that's where where oxygen can can really help. I mean, you really have just better overall perfusion, better sense of well being. I think when your when your body is living in a hypoxic state, even if it's minimally hypoxic, you're kind of always on guard. You're always waiting for something that you may need to do. You know, your your constant state of of health and well being is feeling, I don't know if the word threatened is right, but it just doesn't doesn't feel like it's something that's entirely restful enough for you to drop off to sleep. So the oxygen really helps, especially at 7,000 meters and above, to be able to get that needed sleep. It sounds like the needed sleep, or also if you're exerting yourself, those are the times where oxygen can really, really be helpful. Absolutely. That's the restorative ability of of uh, of a climber on oxygen versus not is uh, is quite pronounced i mean just your ability to recover from from extreme elevation extreme performance and exhaustion is really aided and abetted by oxygen which is let's face it just a very strong medicine at high altitude sure no it all makes perfect sense it's just amazing how the body you know tries to adapt and and how we we've um found these ways to, to come alongside it as well with science, with oxygen, with, with things like that. Peter, I want, I want to ask you in general, if a rescue needs to happen in a high mountain area, whether it's the Himalayas, the Andes, the Alaska range, I mean, how does that look at, at some point? Are you trying to have other climbers carry someone down the mountain? I've heard helicopters can't get up to certain elevations. There's kind of a, a cap on how high helicopters can come. And what does that look like? And where's that cap to where air support kind of is not an option? Yeah, air support is is almost always a, a second option in a lot of ways. One's more reliant on one's climbing companions to assist with any type of ground ground support that one needs to get someone down. In recent years, uh, the increasing 
And uh, I think the improvement in the technology for high mountain flying has really come and it has arrived in Nepal. We've start, we've seen actually a helicopter touch a skid down on the top of Everest. This was, uh, I want to say like 2004 or 2005, there was a French team that uh, brought a stripped down version of what they call the B3 helicopter uh, that uh, that was able to do so. They've done rescues and from a variety of places on Everest. Uh, they've been able to fly into Camp 2 now routinely. That's at about 22,000 feet. So we start to see helicopters being used more and more on Everest, but on a, on a remote mountain in a different place in poor weather, you're not going to have that type of capability. So you really need to be reliant on your team members. And then obviously if there are other teams on the mountain, they may be approached to assist with the, the overall evacuation. <clears throat> yeah, very interesting. I, I didn't realize that technology was improving and that helicopters are, are getting up to higher elevations, but I'd imagine in some situations that could be critical. Absolutely. I mean, you, you, uh, I mean certainly when I first started to go to Everest in, in the 1980s, we didn't see helicopters going to Everest Base Camp with any type of regularity. I was part of a team that assisted in 1996 doing the highest helicopter evacuation on Everest, which was at about 21,000 feet, um, and rescued Beck Weathers and Makalu Gao, who were part of the, the team that were severely affected by the high winds and the difficult climate that we experienced in 1996. But those were the highest elevations that, that people took, took uh, helicopters at that time on Everest, and now it's become very routine for people to fly to Everest Base Camp where there could be there could be 20 flights a day going to the the outpost and at Everest Base Camp and there could be similar number of flights going up to Camp 2 at roughly 22,000 feet and certainly when I started climbing there that was that was unthinkable that's interesting so when you were climbing you'd fly to a lower elevation and and have to trek up to those base camps I'd imagine we did we actually some sometimes we we took a bus and walked 2 weeks before we got to base camp. So, I mean, that's how long I've been doing this, right? So uh, in any case, we've seen technology, we've seen the advent of, of more more numbers and better quality helicopters available. We've, uh, you know, we've seen the opening of the airstrip in Lukla by Sir Edmund Hillary and being used quite a bit more. I mean, certainly when I flew in, it wasn't a paved runway. It was just a you know, basically it was a cow pasture and people would run and chase the cows off when the airplanes would come in. And now it's completely paved. Uh, there's a, there's an actual heliport and, and, uh, and of course, a plane, plane hangar there. So it's, uh, it's completely changed in the, in the last 20 years. So traveling into Kumbu has changed dramatically, but, you know, we certainly enjoyed the walking in, got us really acclimatized, um, in those two weeks that we, uh, that we traveled to Everest Base Camp. So climbers now generally fly into the village of Lukla at about 9,000 feet and trek in. Some people trek in a lot faster. Um, some people acclimatize in other places and then fly in all the way to Everest Base Camp. So there are a lot of different types of options that people enjoy because of the, uh, the I guess, the proliferation of, of helicopters and, and some fixed-wing aircraft as well. Pete, generally speaking, do people... Did people back in the day per, expect to spend more time on the mountain than they, than they do um, in the in the current times? People would expect to to spend away from the states about three months. You know that was the amount of time it took not only to to walk to to base camp, but at the end of the expedition walk back out, which could take up to a month in and of itself. Now people will spend maybe as little as, as three to four weeks or much as six weeks, but generally not much more than that now. But you had to factor in the extra acclimatization time and the extra approach time because one would have to travel with all of one's equipment. They would have to be traveling on the backs of either pack animals or local porters would help us carry that equipment. So that could take, that could take several weeks to get to Everest Base Camp, to set up the base camp and, and to be ready to go. Pete, you talked about the benefits to maybe having some focus away from Everest in the region, where it, obviously the Everest region probably gets some of the highest crowds. What about these other regions in the Himalaya? And I wanted to ask you, are there possibly mountains that have not yet been climbed? 
Oh, there there are so many so many peaks that have still still not been climbed. Maybe certainly the the eastern eastern Himalaya, where we see uh, just a huge proliferation of six and seven thousand meter peaks. Uh, that most of them are are unfortunately off off limits to uh, to Western people. Chinese climbers can go to them. Uh, Tibetan climbers can go to them. Um, certainly along along the borders with Bhutan, you know, Bhutanese people do not climb. It's it's forbidden to climb actually in Bhutan. But uh, there are so many peaks still uh, in the Himalayan chain, the Northern Caucasus. Uh, there's still a lot of unexplored terrain out there. Of course, they're they're not the 8,000 meter peaks left. All of those have been climbed, but there may be some peaks that are are very close to 8,000 meter peaks and would probably benefit from a new survey because some of them are are really close enough where they could actually be 8,000ers. So there's still a lot of terrain left to explore for for mountaineers who are willing to push it. And if they have the uh, the political acumen to get into these places, it's just not the same world that it was in the uh, the seventies, eighties, and nineties when I was doing most of the climbing that uh, that I that I was doing that was more exploratory. So it's it's just become a, a more difficult world to travel in. You know, we used to say that, you know, it used to be that the mountains were dangerous and the uh, you know, but the countries were always great to go into and the politics were easy easier to navigate. And now it's completely different. It's uh, it can be quite dangerous going into it's some of the some of the places certainly in in Pakistan and and uh, and parts of India that are are quite are quite dangerous to go to. So it sounds like in general some areas may be more restrictive now or just more un- unsettled and and less safe geopolitically. Absolutely, there's just uh, there are a lot more challenges, a lot more. I guess a lot more dangers that one has to factor in, and and uh, in the in the long and short of it, uh, the political dangers are are very hard to mitigate. Yeah, it is. Sometimes it, it's like okay, you're you're one person, or you're a small team up against this whole system. So I know that can be challenging, um, but yeah, that's that's something when you get out of the states and you start traveling around, it it, it really depends where you are. Pete, uh, you shared a little bit about these advances in aviation with helicopters getting up higher and different kinds of planes. We also know that there have been advances in meteorological sciences in this region with improved modeling and also weather stations where there didn't used to be. Could you share with us a little bit about your help to get a weather station up on the roof of the world? Absolutely. I mean, we uh, we worked with the National Geographic Society and Rolex in putting together five five automated weather stations in the Everest region. One which was uh, which was installed in. 2022 that was at about 88.30 meters, so very close to uh, to the rooftop of the world there, which brings back and te- telemetrically, uh, you know, via you know, you, and you can you can log into it. There's a there's an app with the National Geographic Society which will show you various uh, sources of anemometry, maximum minimum temperature, barometric pressure albedo or reflected or absorbed light, the difference between the, if, uh, the, uh, the, that type of light and uh, just a variety of different types of datum that make uh, climbing the mountain and understanding them a lot more safe. Chiefly, what mountaineers will be looking for will be the, uh, will be the wind speeds. That's the, that's the chief issue that we, we face on a peak like Everest or really any high mountain. It doesn't matter. It doesn't need to be in the Himalaya. It's really dealing with wind, and if you have any idea of what it's doing um, near or on the summit of where you're going, and perhaps in a few other spots along the way, you can can effectively choose choose a day. And there's weather modeling now through a variety of different services that can give you an idea of, of where the actual jet stream is and when it moves off to the north, which typically happens in May and in June. So you're always kind of weighing off the benefits with the mountain. You want to be on the mountain long enough to be able to be acclimatized, but you don't want to be too long to have your performance drop off. And you're trying to converge this jet stream moving to the north with your peaking, with your acclimatization. So it's, you know, you want to hope that you've been on the mountain long enough when that time that maybe that window opens up in May where the jet stream moves off to the north and you're acclimatized, your camps are set up, your logistics are ready, and you're effectively your team is, is ready to move. 
So it sounds like there's an optimal window where you're there long enough to acclimatize, long enough to hit the base camps and the high camps and make a run at the summit. But more time on the mountain, I guess it's more time that things can go wrong. And it's also increasing your window then that the jet stream is going to come back down and these these violent winds are going to hit you, right? So it's, I'd imagine there's a short window that's optimal. That's right, Hal. It's it's really weighing the uh, the benefits of the of the winds that are have moved off to the north and are lower, but also the encroaching of the monsoon season, which usually hits sometime in June or or early July. But we start to see the effects of the monsoon with significant precipitation that can start uh, really anytime once you get get to late May. So it's really trying to thread that needle. That uh, that includes converging on your own personal acclimatization schedule, and then the winds moving off to the north, and then not having the monsoon encroach from the south. So you're kind of weighing these uh, meteorological events with your physiological events. No, fa- fascinating, right? You're you're. It's really this uh, overlap of of the world around you plus what's going on with you personally and and within your team as well. It seems like a lot of complicated logistics to kind of figure this out and, and do optimally. And obviously every, one year is different from the next. So really interesting challenges that, that y'all face over there. Peter, I wanted to ask you this. When I worked at the University of Alaska at the Geophysical Institute, I, I remember writing a press release for the expedition going on Denali to put a weather station up there. And, and I got to know the team that was doing that. They said, yeah, a lot of times we've done this before. We get a weather station up there at I don't know, 18, 19,000 feet. And a lot of times within four to six weeks, it's it's blowing off the mountain or just the winds are so violent up there that that it just destroys our, our, our best equipment. And it started these conversations about the official strongest wind on earth from Mount Washington, New Hampshire. I always thought that's just like, you know, biblical. That's just like undisputed. And then the conversations with the teams in the Alaska range got me thinking, wait, are the highest winds on earth really from Mount Washington? Or is that just the highest sampled winds we have in places like the Himalaya, the Andes, the Alaska range, maybe have much higher winds than that. We just haven't been able to record it. What are you? What are your thoughts on that from your time in the Himalaya and, and establishing this weather station near the roof of the world? Having started my, my climbing career on, on peaks like Mount Washington, Mount Washington itself, I've always had incredible respect for that environment. By the same token, you can, I mean, you can drive a car very close to the to the top of, of Mount Washington. There's a cog railway to the top of Mount Washington. There's a significant weather installation up there. So one might presume that the, the best recording instruments could be in a place like that, whereas on a place like Denali and, uh, and certainly on, on Sagarmatha or Mount Everest, we, we rely on, unfortunately, lighter weight, um, more modular types of, of engineering equipment. And it's an extreme environment and you need and you'd have to have um, more reliable, maybe heavier gauge, more robust instruments. But for Denali and for Everest, you have to carry it up there. You have to be able to carry it up in components because nobody can carry you know, 500 pounds of equipment in a single load. You can't take a helicopter to uh, to drop that equipment off uh, given the weights that that would be required to drop there even in the best conditions so it's uh, it, it's just a challenge of having the recording instruments in the right place and at the right time you know we've certainly lost on everest uh, weather weather stations had them had them go down had them lose their telemetry um, in significant wind events and some of our scientists are still calculating some of uh, some of that data that's come back from them but I think we'll we'll likely see uh, challenges to that uh, to that Mount Washington record, which is uh, which is of course uh, just an, an incredible speed. Oh, it is. I mean, obviously the the winds there in the presidential range and parts of uh, New England, New Hampshire, tremendous wind speeds. Like you're saying, though, they they have the benefit of driving having a road to near the top of the summit. They have a very large ob- observatory. It sounds like you're saying in places like the Himalaya, you don't have those luxuries. You have to pack in lighter weight equipment that maybe is not as durable to to handle a 200 mile an hour wind. Absolutely. And, you know, when when you're talking about trying to get this equipment to the top of Denali and the top of Everest, there's also the human calculus of risk. And you have, you know, certainly in in the case of our expeditions, uh, we had scientists going, going up there, but largely the equipment was being carried by our Sherpa team. 
and it was without them, none of that would have been possible. I mean, certainly our our scientists were were critical in the installation process, but the Sherpas were were really essential to getting all of that equipment there at the right time, being there together, so that they could do the difficult work of installing the uh, the equipment on effectively on bedrock. Because if you if you think you're going to anchor that in snow. That's, that station is going to be gone very, very quickly. I mean, we have to take pneumatic percussion hammers up there to drill holes and to be able to place expansion bolts in those holes to be able to hold everything down and to be able to have effectively this, uh, this station that has a variety of different sensors on them, whether that's anemometry, variety of different types of temperatures, the albedo that I talked about, all of that equipment effectively hangs on these these masts and spars that are all anchored into bedrock and it takes time to do all of that. So the the human calculus and the risk that's involved in doing that is, uh, you know, in an extreme environment like that is significant. Pete, you mentioned Sherpa teams and the invaluable services that they provide. So if a Western expedition came in with 10 climbers in general, uh, would would every expedition have Sherpas? And what would the ratio be of, of Western climbers to Sherpas? There's no really hard, fast and rule on, on the on the ratio there. And certainly Western teams have climbed Everest without Sherpa support. That's that's happened. I, I don't want to say many times, but it's, it's happened several times throughout the course of Everest history. But generally, you're going to see expeditions going to Mount Everest supported by Nepalese Nepalese professionals, whether they're Sherpa, whether they're Rai, Tamang, Gurung, there's so many different ethnic groups now that are doing this type of guiding work. That's not only Sherpas. Sherpas certainly held a monopoly on it for many, many years. But in recent years, we're starting to see other other Nepalese groups and ethnic groups getting involved with climbing. And there's really quite strong people and have the expertise to be able to do this work. But I think what we see with with certainly a, a scientific expedition like the ones we did with National Geographic and Rolex, were uh, we had a ratio of approximately two or three Sherpa for each climbing scientist, and that's not that's not uh, out of the norm. Really fascinating. There, it sounds like it really depends on the expedition, what you're trying to accomplish, and uh, you know, just a lot of factors come into play there. Absolutely, the support that you need is, uh, you know, certainly we just needed a lot of support because we had so much equipment that had to be transferred on a daily basis up the mountain. I mean, people understand that when you're climbing a mountain like Everest, first you're climbing a logistical mountain. You have to have all your supplies all the way up to your top camp that and you build on that camp during the course of the three to four weeks that you're there before you summit. So you have the logistical mountain you have the fiscal mountain. It takes, you know, it takes the money to be able to get all the equipment, get all the people there and make all that happen. So you have the logistical, the fiscal, and then finally you have the physical summit that if you're lucky with the climate, if you're lucky with your acclimatization, everything works according to your plan, you get, you get a shot. It sounds like a lot of different factors overlapping. And like you said, some of the things are in your control, but a lot of them are outside of your control as well. Absolutely. I mean, you just you just try to work with the efficiency that you have, with the team that you have, and and obviously every year, you have a constantly changing mountain. You have a constantly changing climate, and you have to just try to be as prepared as you can for it, and also have the I think a conservative approach, have the humility to be able to withdraw if it's just not going to work and not and not going to be uh, not going to be safe. No, for sure. Fascinating. And, you know, it's really interesting to talk to you because of all your years of experience, the different expeditions you've done. And it sounds like you've been there in, in different capacities as well. Pete, I first met you with your wife, Liesl. You both came to Coastal Texas to film a documentary following Hurricane Harvey. And I know you all have a huge heart to get out there and interact and be a blessing to people that have been affected by catastrophes. I have to ask you, I mean, with all your experience in Nepal and the Himalaya, Obviously, there was that devastating, catastrophic earthquake in April of 2015. What was that like for you to see that? And then, what were the big impacts of, of that earthquake? The uh, well, the earthquake that that hit that hit Nepal not only on the on the first shock, but the second one that came weeks later. 
uh, it was it was devastating for the entire country. Uh, remarkable that during the, during the spring, I know it was it happened in April, I believe, and there were significant numbers of people on the mountain, and the Nepalese did an incredible job of evacuating people out of camps one and two, largely with the support of the helicopters we've been talking about. But if you weren't on Mount Everest, you may not have seen that type of outreach and that type of support going into some of the more remote parts of the country. So there were there were significant groups that were going into various parts of the Himalaya to try to help people who were just, just digging out of there and, and then trying to bring in new types of building technologies to be able to rebuild in some places where, you know, they had, they had had a significant earthquake event 40, 50 years earlier uh, that, that took place that destroyed a, a good, good number of, uh, of significant uh, infrastructure in, in the Kathmandu area and then obviously outside of the capital city as well. Earthquakes are nothing new to the people of Nepal, but it's uh, unfortunately... A lot of the the building that's gone on there is uh, it's not to a type of standard. I mean, very few places have that type of standard that can withstand those, you know, eight eight uh, Richter scale and higher types of earthquakes. So it's it's devastating to the population. Pete, do you think there's the capability and the resources to build back stronger and more earthquake resistant, or are some of these areas just don't have those resources? They just don't have that that wealth to do that. Some some of the places certainly don't don't have those types of resources. They they have uh, you know very minimal resources to begin with, but we are seeing um, people at people making uh, significant contributions towards new types of technology using old school materials. Like one one of the things that we noticed when we did a, a film with Nova on the on the expedi- on the uh, the earthquakes that took place there. Our expeditions focused on why did certain types of architecture survive, and why did some why some didn't, and some of the newer architecture failed, or some of the old architecture survived and continues to survive in this day. And one thing that we learned with some of the uh, the UNESCO sites and some of the ancient temples that are in the Kathmandu Valley is that they had uh, they had significant types of mud and brickwork, but it was interspersed every meter with a layer of wood, which brought a a type of dynamic resilience and ability to absorb the earthquake shocks better than the materials that were just poured concrete or were were mud or adobe. So some of the the ancient construction actually was more resilient and more durable than the newer types of construction. Oh, that's fascinating. We've seen that in other places, like in hurricane country. Sometimes people say, you know, this house is 100 years old, but it has cypress siding that was, you know, very resilient materials to start with. It sounds like you're saying in the Himalaya, there are some of these practices to mix building materials, like maybe mud, stone and wood, maybe perform better in some cases than just poured concrete or, or something that didn't have as many different materials. Absolutely. That's one That's one of the uh, the conclusions that we reached. But again, it may, it may also just be the location of the of that particular temple or that that particular structure. We don't know specifically, but it uh, it it led to some very uh, very interesting research during the course of our time there. Yeah, that is that is fascinating. Always really interesting to see how building better can help you withstand these disasters. We can't necessarily stop the disasters, but if if we can maybe build better, there there may be some things we can do to to mitigate their losses. Peter wanted to ask you as well, several years after the earthquake, COVID-19 happened, we know in parts of the Himalaya and other mountainous regions of the world, there's a large economy based on tourism and on mountaineering. How did COVID impact these mountain areas and how did the people overcome that? It was, uh, COVID was devastating for a, a, a country, not only just a region of the Himalaya, but a country that relies very strongly on tourism as a as as a chief driver of his economy the the country effectively uh, shut down for a period of about 18 18 months i mean there certainly was there was some testing um, vaccines were were very slow to come to come to nepal both from china and from india but they did become available you know a year or more into the actual pandemic 
the Everest expeditions were canceled initially. Uh, they started to open back up again in 2021. I know that I was uh, I went I went there in 2019 to do our big expedition with the Geographic and Rolex, and we had planned to go back the next year in 2020 and 2021, and we had to cancel because of the pandemic. We were able to go back in 2022. Uh, there was certainly still plenty plenty of incidents of COVID in the area. I mean, people were were being evacuated from the Everest region and other parts of Nepal because of COVID, but the but the country was starting to open up again, even prior to 2022 spring. But you did not see the numbers of people coming back as there had been until we reached 2022. And then obviously we have the, I don't want to say the uh, repressed energy of having a couple of years off come back to Everest. And now in the last couple of years, we've seen even greater numbers of people coming back to the mountain. But during the pandemic, it was a very difficult time for people who rely on that 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 income to, you know, whether that's in trekking lodges or whether that's a Nepali porter who relies on that that income for his family and his family farm, or whether that's a climbing Sherpa or whether that's uh, another professional who works in the trekking industry, a business owner in Kathmandu, a hotel owner in Kathmandu. All of those people were severely affected by by the lack of tourist revenue. Pete, I heard within the climbing community some fundraisers happen for for climbers to raise money and send that over to Nepal and places like that. I wasn't surprised to hear that. I know the climbing community often comes together as a family. I mean, I'd imagine that uh, that you you heard of some of these things, and it must have been very moving. Absolutely. I mean, between, you know, the, the large, large foundations like the American Himalayan Foundation in San Francisco to, you know, small family run foundation, the Kumbu Climbing School, Alex Lowe Charitable Foundation, all these very small philanthropic organizations were doing fundraisers, selling T-shirts, brownies. Uh, the American Himalayan Foundation was not selling brownies. We were selling brownies. But uh, but anyway, we were just trying to get money into the hands of, of people who who didn't have trekking work and who were who were just kind of living hand to mouth on on their own saved resources. Um, when you lose a couple of Everest seasons and a, a good climbing Sherpa who will make eight to ten thousand dollars per season, it's uh, they rely on that income and without having it, they get into a subsistence mode where no one could travel during the pandemic. You couldn't go to another place and get a different job. You really were just stuck. So many different philanthropic organizations got involved, but as importantly, just the community themselves stepped up and, and helped one another. And that's, I think, one of the, the enduring uh, lessons that I've learned in, in traveling there is the community step up and help one another. You know, they they work together to try to make sure that, you know, the old people in the villages are taken care of. The young kids are, are still getting an education, that people are still having enough food to put on the table. It might be really meager, but the people just pull together in, in a way that's, it's just, uh, it's it's remarkable and very heartwarming to see. No, very encouraging. And these are the examples, you know, with COVID, obviously, it was such a catastrophe. And hearing these types of examples, I, I think, you know, really inspired a lot of people like, wait, if they're looking out for each other, maybe we can do the same wherever people were located. Pete, before we Absolutely. wrap up the podcast, I wanted to ask you, I, when I met you and Liesl, you guys were, were down here, you do filmmaking, uh, making documentaries, often documenting how people have overcome natural disasters and, and catastrophes. I know Liesl is very in, involved with the Buy Nothing Project, where people can actually give to people that have been impacted by a disaster, where those disaster-stricken people don't have to buy new goods. Could you just share a little bit about that work that that you two have done going into disaster zones and, and not only documenting it, but helping people out that were that were impacted? Absolutely. I mean, how when we when we met, we were we were going through various parts of, of Texas to to look at the devastating effects of, of what Hurricane Harvey did that year. And we were uh, we were just moved by how gracious people were and how uh, incredibly giving people were to try to assist the people who had been, you know, had their homes flooded, had ha were living outside. I mean, we had no ability to travel. When I mean, we saw people coming from West Texas, from Louisiana, from a variety of different places, I mean, the the efforts of the of the Cajun Navy were uh, were really well well documented. 
Um, what was less well documented was just how how so many different people from different backgrounds came together from different political stripes, from different socioeconomic backgrounds. But people were there to help, you know, whether it was getting someone to a doctor's appointment or bringing somebody their prescriptions or shopping for groceries. This was happening on a, on a micro level. And Liesl's efforts with the Buy Nothing Project is to try to encourage the same type of community, the same type of sharing ethic to be able to, you know, effectively try to essentialize what people's needs are, how we have a, a real abundance amongst people, although we may not always see it, and to try to recognize that everyone can have something to share if they want to learn more about the Buy Nothing Project. You know, certainly we have a we have an app available through the the Apple Store, the website. Um, buy nothing. You can check everything out there, but um, you know, buy nothing also does a, a variety of different disaster types of drives when there are those issues taking place throughout the world. We had a significant outreach during the the earthquake period that brought materials to Nepal at that time. So we had an earthquake relief sort of subsite within the buy nothing website. So we're we just find that. When, where there are people in need, there are people willing to step up, which is why I'm still encouraged, despite the issues we we have. And it seems like we, we do see a lot of conflict in the world today. I mean, what's going on, obviously, in in the Middle East right now is, is terrible. But we also see that there are people willing to step up and there are people willing to help. So I'm always encouraged by that. And Liesl and I want to try to harness that and try to through our efforts, make that make that easier, more efficient for people, if and when we can. Yeah, Pete, like you said, there's a lot of problems in the world, but I, I think the work you and Liesl and, and your team are doing are it's very inspirational, right? It's giving people an opportunity to reach out, get to that disaster zone, that war-stricken zone, and actually help people out. And like you said, you don't have to have tons of resources or tons of money to make a difference. Things like the Buy Nothing Project, you're, you're connected with someone on the inside that really just needs sometimes that basic living supply. So really encouraging and inspirational here with GeoTrek. We're always trying to share these stories that are not covered by the mainstream media. And we see sometimes that the mainstream media comes in, they want to be there for two days when the disaster hits and then they're gone. And it's like, wait, there's so much good stuff happening sometimes in disaster zones with, with groups like yours coming in and helping folks out. So uh, thanks for all the hard work you're doing. And thanks again today for taking time to come in the podcast. It was fun to travel with you from the Pacific Northwest to the Himalaya to Texas after Hurricane Harvey. We covered a lot of ground, and I think our listeners will be very inspired. Thanks so much, Hal. I, I really appreciate having the opportunity to to speak with you and, and obviously your community and wish everybody well, and I hope I can come back soon. Thanks, Pete. Appreciate you taking time to come in the podcast. All right. Take care, Hal. Bye for now.